Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Goals today to make it through chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, today. Stay right through until the dedication service. Uh, So it should be fun. Um, But I'll remind you that chapter 6, verse 4, it began a fourth cycle of judgment. That's how the book of Hosea is kind of laid out. There's sort of this series of accusations. Um, This is, you know, where you've gone off the mark, uh, Israel, and then the Lord calling them back to himself. And then once again, uh, they they go astray again and goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so we have now this fourth cycle of judgment here. Notice how chapter 8 begins. I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel, we know you. Verse 3, Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They've made kings, but not through me. They've set up princes, but I didn't know it. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger, it burns against you. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And so as we begin this chapter, notice how it begins. It says, set the trumpet to your lips. Now, setting the trumpet to the lips, the purpose of that was to call the people to assembly. And we looked at that. We spent some time on a Wednesday night not too long ago, how there would be different... uh, different sounds or types of sounds that would come out. If it would be a couple of long, fast uh, toots of the horn, it would mean this, and one, it would mean that, and so on. Here, Hosea is told to gather the assembly, summon the congregation together into the presence of the Lord, into the meeting place of the Lord, that they may hear the reality of their condition. And what is the reality of their condition? We read that there in that opening verse. It says they have transgressed the covenant of God and they have rebelled against his law. And so Hosea then is told to gather them together, and a judgment is about to be pronounced on them for having gone astray. Notice what he says also in verse 1. He says that one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Now some of your versions might say one like an eagle. And the general idea is the same, this bird of prey that is hovering over, ready to attack uh, and, and take sort of its dinner for the evening. But it's interesting to know that the word there could also be eagle because the eagle was the symbol of the the empire of Assyria. And Assyria is the very one that was hovering over Israel, ready to take them away and take them into captivity. The Lord says, "You've you've broken covenant with me. He says, you've rebelled against my law and you refuse to repent. And so the Lord says, and so my hand of protection upon the nation of Israel, my hand of provision for this unique people in the history of the world, the Lord is going to remove it. And he's going to allow the surrounding nations to attack Israel and to take those people away captive. This is right around 730 BC. Within five or ten years, the Assyrians would enter into the northern kingdom and begin to take them away captive. It's pronounced here, as in other places, but here in verse 1. Notice, though, verse 2, he says, To me they cry, My God, we Israel, we know you. It's, so the judgment is pronounced, and the response is, But God, we're Israel. We can't be, you can't take your hand of provision away from us. 
your, ta- your hand of protection from us. We're Israel. Some versions translate this, but we acknowledge you, God. I find that interesting because really what Israel is saying there is this. Look, we are performing the rituals that you've asked of us. You told us to perform these rituals and do these sacrifices. We've been doing those things. We've been bringing our offerings and our sacrifices to you. We acknowledge you, Lord. We profess to know you, Lord. But the reality is, as it says there in verse 3, they have actually spurned the Lord that they dare to claim that they're acknowledging him when in actuality they are disregarding him and his law. Now you say, well, how did they do that? Look at verse 4. Two examples are specifically given in verse 4. It says, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. And with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Two different things there are listed. These aren't the only two things that Israel ever did wrong. But the first thing that is listed is that they established for themselves kings, if you will, without God's permission or without asking God, what do you think about this particular thing? The other is that with their silver and gold, they made idols that they would worship. And some of you may recall that when uh, Samuel was a prophet and a judge of sorts over the people of Israel, that they had come to Samuel, and their words were this. These are sad words. And we say them all the time, I think, ourselves. But they said this, look, you're old. How'd you like that? Hey, thanks. You know, he says, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. They say to Samuel, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. That's the sad part. Israel, you're not like all the other nations. You are a people uniquely called out by God unto himself. And now you want to be like all the other nations? We want a king like all the other nations. Samuel, as you can imagine, feels as if in many ways perhaps he's failed. He brings that matter to the Lord. The Lord continues in chapter 8. He says, obey the voice of the people, Samuel, in all that they ask of you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. They asked for a king, but I didn't know of it, the Lord says back there in Hosea. He says, Samuel, here in the book of 1 Samuel, give them what they're asking for. Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. The second thing, the accusation brought against the nation of Israel here, is that they used the fruit of God's blessings, which was the silver and the gold in the land, and they used that to make idols so that they might worship those idols. And even in doing that, they say, but Lord, we still acknowledge you. Again, here they are. They're professing that they know the Lord, but their works make it very plain that they don't know the Lord. And so making reference then in the next verse, verse 5, to the golden calves, when Israel, I've said this a number of times in our study, uh, but when Israel and Judah, when, when the nation of Israel underwent its civil war, the northern kingdoms, they decided they would worship elsewhere. They wouldn't go down to Jerusalem anymore. Jerusalem was part of Judah. The fear of the new king of the northern kingdom was if they go down to Judah, their hearts are going to be won over there to the people of Judah. And they'll never be loyal to us. Maybe they'll never even come back to us. And so he establishes a new place for them to worship. And to make it convenient, he sets two of them up in different portions of the new northern kingdom. And they build for themselves golden calves and declare, these are the gods that set you free from Egypt. And that would be the place where they'd worship. Notice what he says in verse 5. Hosea is speaking, the Lord speaking through him. He says, I have spurned your calf, 
O Samaria. Samaria was that portion of Israel. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. It is not a God. The calf of Samaria will be broken into pieces. The Lord there accusing them of that sin and saying, I've spurned that calf. Continue on, verse 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Verse 8. Israel is swallowed up already. They are among, among the nations as a useless vessel. They've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired her lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Now here is Israel thinking that they can go on disregarding the Lord and his ways without any penalty coming against them. But the reality is those very things that they have sown, which was rejecting God and rebelling against his ways, those very things would bring forth or yield the fruit of bitterness. They thought they could disregard the Lord and there'd be no problem with it. But it's those very things that were going to come back and, if you will, bite them. And they would soon discover what multitudes have discovered both before and since that particular day, that what you sow is what you reap. And here we read, it says, they have sown to the wind and they're going to reap the whirlwind. Notice what it says in 7. It says that their grain crops would yield no fruit. They would fail, it says. It says that they'll be swallowed up by the surrounding nations. In the verse there, it mentions that the political alliances that they established to save them. So here is the enemy nation or empire of Assyria coming to attack them. Their plan, instead of repenting, trusting the Lord, walking in his ways, that he'll deliver them from that attack, their plan is to go to Assyria and establish alliances with Assyria. Assyria. How much? How much do you want? to not attack us. And Assyria says, well, give us a million dollars. And they gave him a million, you know, two million, five million, ten. It was never going to be enough. And finally, Assyria will come in. Those political alliances would fail and Israel would be attacked. Israel for years, and when we say years, we're talking about a thousand years. They thought they could do their own thing. Whatever that thing would be, they could do that and they would be fine. God would continue to bless them. They would continue to remain the apple of his eye and his material blessing and protection, supernatural protection would be upon them. The reality is there was a direct and there is a direct correspondence between what a person does and what happens to him or her subsequently. You reap what you sow. One commentator expressed it this way. He says, deed is seed which is multiplied into harvest. And those little things that we continue to do day after day after day, they eventually build a lifetime, a harvest of a lifetime. And the scripture is abundantly clear. This is from Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And Israel's problem is repeatedly and habitually they did what their flesh told them to do. What are we told in the New Testament to do to our flesh? Put it to death. Because our flesh will always want to go its own direction. Sometimes, coincidentally, that may line up with God's direction. 
more often than not, it's in a completely different direction. And since they continually and repeatedly went after their flesh, they continually reaped corruption and the consequences of those decisions. Verse 11 continues, it says, Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice me and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them, nor will he remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Now, a couple things in here that you want to notice. In verse 13, it says, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice me and eat it. There were a host of different types of offerings that the Jews were told to bring. Some of those offerings, they would bring an animal, and the animal would be completely consumed on the fire. Others, they would bring grain, for instance, and they would present that there. Then there was some meat offerings, animal offerings, where a portion of it went to the temple, if you will, and then a portion of it was kept by the worshiper. So they'd bring the meat, and then they'd go home with some of the meat. And then they would go back to their house with their family, and they would enjoy this meat. That was what was called the fellowship offering. And it was an opportunity for them to enjoy fellowship with one another and, in a sense, with the Lord. And you brought your fellowship offering essentially to say, Lord, you're good. And I'm so happy to be in relationship with you. That's what's being referred to here It's when it says they sacrifice meat and eat it. But he says, but the Lord does not accept them. Ephraim, which again is another name for Israel, they're multiplying their altars to all of their foreign gods that are out there while still bringing their sacrifices to Jehovah God. And he says here they continued to build their altars and they became for them altars for sinning. The Lord says in so many words, he said, look, if I were to write down 10,000 laws for you to obey, it would do you no good because you've ignored the one law, the two law, the three law. Right, 10,000. You've ignored them already. You're going to continue to ignore them. And so a day of reckoning is coming. If you look at verse 13, it ends. It says, and they shall return to Egypt. Now, Israel did not return literally to Egypt. Egypt was the place of bondage. Egypt was the place where they were enslaved. Egypt, uh, Israel was going to return to the place of bondage. When, as they were enslaved in Egypt, they're going to be enslaved by the Assyrians. They're going into captivity. And he has called them and called them and called them. Over a thousand years, he sent scores of prophets. I didn't do the math here, but 30, 40 prophets were sent to them to warn them, to tell them, to draw them back to himself. But they kept on going their own direction. And so what is the Lord's final remedy? His only remedy left is to give them over to their sin. Let them have it. You want it, have it. And then you're going to come back to me eventually. It's going to be very painful, but you'll come back to the Lord eventually and say, Lord, would you accept me back? Forgive me. Deliver me from this judgment. There's one more verse in verse 8, or excuse me, chapter 8, that I think is important. It's one of, uh, I think, the most important verses in the chapter. It says, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built for themselves and, Ju- and built palaces. Judah has multiplied fortified cities, and so I will send a fire upon his, her cities, his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. And I say it's one of the most important verses in the chapter because all of the things in the chapter that are happening are because of that, because Israel has forgotten their maker. And why did Israel forsake God's law? Why did they ignore 
the commandments of the Lord? Why do they accumulate idols for themselves and continue to vainly sacrifice to the Lord? They did all those things because they had forgotten their maker. All of the specifics of what Israel has done detailed throughout this chapter come back to that. They have forgotten their maker. Now, how, can, how do you forget your maker? I mean, ultimately, it, that, it's basically impossible. It, it reminded me as I was thinking this through, it reminds me of when someone says, you know, don't think of the big elephant with a pink tutu. You know, like that's what you're thinking of. And you're like, oh, okay, I can't not think of it now because you told me to about it and you told me to think about it. And the same way, how could you forget your maker? Well, a couple of things about this. A person really cannot forget God. The word that is used there for forget is not in the sense of not being able to remember something any longer. The word there, forget, means to neglect something. And that's what Israel had done. They neglected the Lord. And by their actions, it was clear they still remembered the Lord because they kept coming down to the place and bringing their sacrifices. So they still knew who the Lord was. We acknowledge you, they had said. But what they, what they demonstrate and show is though they knew the Lord intellectually, they neglected him practically. And they actually began to push him aside, allowing others to take his place. Life in the promised land had grown quite comfortable for them. They were doing well. They were successful. Their, their fields were yielding quite a harvest each year. They were prospering within the society, and they were guarded from their enemy nations, and things were going well, and so they began to drift further and further and further away from the Lord. Notice how chapter 9 continues. He says here, he being Hosea, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Now, we don't know this for sure, but commentators, they suspect, they believe that the these opening words of Hosea came during the occasion of a harvest festival. And the harvest festival for the Jewish people was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a fall festival, and as with most fall festivals, it was considered a time of joy. We got plenty, and the work is done. We can finally relax after a tough summer of work here. And so the people, the Feast of Tabernacles was just that. It was a feast it was a time of celebration. And the Feast of Tabernacles was characterized by celebration and food, mirth and food, dancing and food. And that's what it was. It was a feast. It was a picnic. They celebrated. They enjoyed one another. And into that scene now, so here's this big Fourth of July party, and everyone's having a great time. Into that scene comes Hosea. And he enters in and he demands that the party come to a close. Look at his first two words. He says, rejoice not, O Israel. He says, exalt not. This isn't a party any longer. Now, it's part of the reason why a little later, if you just skip down to verse 7 for a second, their response to him is to laugh at him and to call him a madman. Because their thinking is, no, what are you talking about? Everything is great. 
Everything is wonderful. We got all the food. We have all the wine that we could want. What do you mean that the threshing floor and the wine vat will be empty? Just look around you, they say there to Hosea. And as we'll see, the people, they may not have liked Hosea's message. And it would have been no doubt difficult for them to accept with all of that wealth that was around them. But the reality is it was very easy for them to understand what Hosea was saying. They had forsaken the Lord and the Lord was going to forsake them. And because God was going to forsake them, the blessings of the harvest would soon come to an end. And Hosea's message here now in chapter 9 is that all this blessing that is before you is no longer going to be yours because a day of reckoning has come. Continuing in verse 3, he says, They will not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Verse 4, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. It'll be like mourner's bread to them, he says. All who eat of it will be defiled. Verse 5 now, what, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel will know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snail, snare excuse me, is, all in his way, is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They've deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah and he will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. Notice in the verse, the days of punishment and the days of recompense have come. And the result is going to be they're going to be taken away into captivity. They may have regarded their prophets as fools and as madmen, but the reality is those prophets are going to be proven to be true. And they repeatedly ignored the warnings. And so thus the time has come for them to be delivered over to judgment. Their response to Hosea was just to laugh at him. And time was going to prove that he could be laughed at, but his words couldn't be ignored. And punishment and recompense was coming. Verse 9, it says, They've deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Now, the days of Gibeah, Gibeah, that's one of those expressions where a place becomes associated with an event and you don't know that place for anything else ever again. Okay, so for instance, if I say, you know, something about Pearl Harbor, you're, you're thinking not like, oh, the beaches of, uh, of Hawaii. You're thinking about the events in World War II. Similarly, if we talk about the World Trade Center these days, we're thinking about 9-11 or the events of the Alamo or something. We're thinking about those particular events. The days of Gibeah were a dark day in the history of the Jewish people. According to Judges chapter 19 to 21, Judges 19 to 21, this was perhaps the lowest moral point in the nation's history up to that point with sin. Sin so grievous that even the nation itself was shocked by how horrendous the crime had become. You can read Judges 19 to 21. The quick general idea here is that an entire city of men repeatedly raped and ultimately murdered the servant girl of a Levite traveler. And the response of the nation was like, that is, that is horrible. 
This is the story where the man said, we need to come, the, the Levite traveler said, we have to deal with the Benjaminites for what they have done. And he cut the woman's dead body up and he mailed pieces of her body to all the nations and he said, this is what needs to be done. Who's with me? And the people were so horrified. How far as a nation have we descended that this sort of thing can occur? Well, it's like the days of Gibeah, Gibeah here in Hosea. The sin that took place in those days shocked a nation to action. Hosea is saying this. He's saying the sins of that day are par for the course in this day. That's a statement to be made, isn't it? Verse 10 continues. He says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And they became detestable like the thing they loved. The thing, by the way, is their God, their idol. And it's just called a thing here. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I'll bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give, Hosea says? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. And verse nine, 10, actually, it begins kind of nostalgically with the Lord remembering back to the days when he called Israel to himself. Sadly, as the, the paragraph goes on, the, those sweeter and simpler times are long a thing of the past because the nation has become a people that is consecrated. You can see it there in verse 10 consecrated, dedicated to a thing of shame, which again is a reference to the deity that they created for themselves. The little statue that they made fell down, worshipped, that they declared these are the gods that have delivered us. They have become a thing of shame. They became like their false god. The Lord further, he goes on and he enunciates how he's going to remove his blessing from them. He says that their glory shall fly away like a bird that their woman, women shall become barren in the land. The Lord is going to leave them. Now, certainly, there's this sense that God is always with us. One of his character traits is his omnipresence. He's always with us. And ultimately, God is inescapable. But there's this certain sense in which he sometimes judges his people by turning from them so that he's not there for them when they cry to him. And that's what the Lord says he's about to do with Israel, because for 10 centuries, for 10 hundred peri periods of 100 years, they had benefited from the presence of God, even though they didn't honor him. And now the Lord says he's going to withdraw from them. And the result is going to be the end of those many blessings. He goes on in verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I'll drive them out of my house. I'll love them no more. All their princes rebel. 16, Ephraim is stricken. Ephraim, again, is Israel. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I'll put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Now, 800 years earlier, when Moses was still on the scene with the Jewish people, leading the Jewish people, we read these words in the book of Deuteronomy. He's giving them a choice. He says, before you is life and death. Choose life. I think it's jo Joshua says that, but it's the same idea what he says. 
He says, look, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions so severe and lasting and sickness grievous and lasting, 64, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. That was 800 years earlier that Moses said, here's the law that's before you. Choose life, not death. Choose blessing, not curse. If you choose curse, this is what's going to happen to you. And among other things, it says the Lord will scatter you among the people. It was out there for the people. And the Jewish people of Moses' day said, we choose life. We're with you. We'll do whatever it takes. But as time went on, that commitment of that people, it faded away. And they began to run after their other gods, and they brought upon themselves the extraordinary afflictions that God said would be theirs. And because they would not heed, they would be scattered. And the northern kingdom would be sent off into captivity for 100 years or so. That's the final word for Israel here in the book of Hosea. The judgment is coming. He had invited them to come back. They wouldn't come back. And he had done that repeatedly here. That is their final word. And the judgment prophesied by Hosea came upon the northern kingdom within a decade. 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and they led the Jewish people away. And the word of God through the prophets ceased to the Jewish people until the coming of the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even to this day, the nation of Israel as a whole, the Jewish people as a whole, they continue to remain in darkness, wandering like lost souls. That need not be true of any one of us in this room this morning. Because all of these warnings, all of these things that we're seeing here, how they neglected the Lord, none of us needs to go down this path where we bring a judgment upon ourselves. The Lord in his mercy is reaching out to us and calling out to us, and we can respond to his plea and return to him. These signs here of condemnation for the, for the Jewish people, for you and I, they could be signs of evaluation, where we look at these things and we, we take inventory of who we are as followers of Christ, as Christians in our society in which we're living in. Do I neglect the Lord? Do I hardly even know that he is there? Do I go my own direction? Do I chase after my own things? Do I feed my flesh more than the things of the Spirit? These are the things that the children of Israel were doing, and they received the consequences for doing so. You and I, we don't need to do so because the Lord will forgive and he will restore as we take inventory. Let's go on to chapter 10 quickly. Hosea continues, kind of goes back and forth. Hosea speaking, the Lord speaking continues there explaining how Israel has indeed fallen to the point where the only option for the Lord now is judgment and recompense, punishment and recompense. He begins, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, he says. Now they must bear their guilt and the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. The blessings here called fruit, Israel's a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Those blessings, that fruit that God would, said would be theirs when they come into the land, the land flowing with milk and honey, all those blessings and so on that go with that, that Israel began to use those blessings 
to worship and serve their false gods now that they were in the land. And so here God is saying to them, you're going to come to a land one day. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all of these things. Now they're in the land. They take those blessings and they use them to worship their false gods. I think this is a helpful test here for God's people of whatever era that we're referring to. As God blesses you with material blessings, how do you use that? How do you spend those blessings? If you think about a tree, the fruit of a tree is never intended for self-consumption. The tree itself doesn't eat those things. It's meant for others to consume. And if you find yourself the primary consumer of God's blessings in your life that he's bestowed on you, take heed. That's what Israel was doing. And I, I would suggest to you that's likely an indicator that you've gotten a bit off track. Israel was once a luxuriant vine. Now it's empty, it says here. And the reason is, is because they use their prosperity only to increase their idolatry. And previously we saw that the specific details of Israel's sin, it could be traced all the way back to having forgotten the Lord. Notice here we have a similar root cause of all that we're going to read about in this chapter. Look at verse 2. It says, and their heart is false. All of the difficulties that are going to follow can be traced back to that fact. Their heart is false. Some of your versions say it's divided. It's deceitful. Their heart is deceitful. Their heart is divided. When this word is used in the Hebrew to describe a person's speech, it, it is meant to imply or communicate that they have smooth speech or slippery speech. That is, they're trying to deceive you. That they have, if you, they're double-tongued, if you will, saying one thing but meaning another. And the idea that the Lord is communicating here is that the people, Jewish people, they're going through the motions of doing one thing when actually they were intent on doing something completely different. And as many of us have discovered, and the Scripture teaches, it's impossible to walk with God with a divided heart. It's interesting to note the Lord doesn't even ask to be first in our hearts. So it's not like the Lord said, look, you can have all that other stuff. I just want to be first. The Lord says, don't bring any of that stuff before me. Not before him in line. Don't even bring it into my presence. The Lord isn't interested in us having a divided heart. As long as he's number one, he tells us to give us his whole heart. Jesus quotes this in the New Testament. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. So the Jewish people knew it. They can't say they didn't know. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And it's only when we do that and we give him all of ourselves and all of our lives that we can be brought into complete harmony with him and the ways that he would have us to go. Israel had a divided heart. And as we see in verses 3 and following, they were committed to walking in their own ways. Let me read it to you. They will say, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? Remember, they really wanted a king at one point. Now they're doing their own thing. They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame. Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up upon its altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall 
upon us. Now, in Hosea's day, Hosea ministered for about 60 years. He, of all the prophets, he ministered for the longest duration of time. Toward the close of his ministry, it was about to coincide. It didn't coincide exactly with the Assyrians coming in. But toward the last 10 years or so of Hosea's ministry, there were four different kings in Israel within a period of 10 years. And the reason why is because four different times people rose up, killed that king, and replaced him with another. And then two years later, another king rose up, killed that king, and replaced him with himself, and so on and so forth. Four straight assassinations or coups in about a decade. That speaks to a period of unrest in a society. It speaks to instability within a society. And it's also indicative of a general attitude that had developed in society that no one is going to tell me what to do. I don't care if you're the king. I'll just grab a knife and I'll take you out. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. And that's what they had said to their kings, as we see in the verse, and to ultimately to the Lord. And the Lord says in verse 4, look, they utter mere words, empty oaths. They come to the palace, they come to the temple, they say what they're going to say, they commit themselves to the Lord, but they're just empty words, empty oaths, mere words. He says, judgment will spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. On multiple occasions, Israel pledged themselves to walk with the Lord, and yet they spiral downward and downward and downward into apostasy. Nothing but empty words. And so again, the Lord is going to take them from Israel and make them inhabitants of a foreign empire. The land is going to lay essentially uh, barren of people, and the weeds are going to take over. He talks about the poisonous weeds infiltrating the land. Verse 5 and 6 continues talking about the inhabitants of Samaria trembling for the calf of Bethaven. Bethaven, we've said this, it's not even a real place. It's a play on words. Bethel is the real place, but Bethel is the place, it means house of God. That's the place they set up one of their calves to worship. Bethaven means house of vanity. And so it's this play on words, you know, the, the place that should have been the house of God and his people you have made a house of vanity. You've set up a false god. You built it. You made it. And now you've decided that it's your deity? That doesn't make any sense. This is a place of vanity here. And the Assyrians are going to come in. They're going to conquer the nation. They're going to seize that god. Somebody has said, if somebody can steal your god, you're following the wrong god. And that's what they did. They've taken away that golden calf as a treasure a spoil of victory, and they brought it back to Assyria. They, they probably erected it as a trophy of one more nation that they have de- defeated. And what did the children of Israel do? They mourn its loss. Ironically, is- Assyria was helping Israel here. They were taking away their false deity so they could worship it no more. But rather than coming to their senses and realizing how foolish it was for them to build a god that they would worship, it says here that Israel goes on and they mourn and tremble the loss of their idol. Just one more indicator of how far that they have fallen. They're mourning and trembling the loss of an idol that they made rather than their sin, which caused judgment to come upon them. Verse 7, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig in the face of the waters. Like Ephraim, Samaria is another pseudonym for Israel. And I think this is a reference to the repeated 
assassinations of their kings. Verse 8, the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed and thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. Notice what the people will say. They'll say, cover us to the hills, fall upon us. Does that sound, that's a familiar verse, isn't it? It is actually. Luke chapter 23 in the New Testament, those are the same words that Jewish people are going to cry out during the days of the tribulation. Fall on us and to the hills cover us. And the idea there is that if the mountains fall upon them, the hills cover over them, they'll, they'll be killed. They'll die. That death would come and finally the judgment would end. Their pain, their suffering would stop. But notice there, still no repentance no mourning for their sin, just a desire for the judgment to come to an end. Verse 9, from the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Ephraim, Samaria, Judah, Jacob, all reference to the Jewish people. The nation of the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom there of Judah. And again, references made back to Gibeah, that place synonymous with the darkest days of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And the end result being that that horrific atrocity that's recorded in that particular passage is really just par for the course, as I said uh, earlier. It's just standard fares in the fair in the days here of Hosea. It's no longer going to be the exception. It's going to become the norm. And the Lord says, I will discipline them. I'll gather the nations against them. I'll bind them up. They'll become slaves and captives to the foreigners. I'll put Ephraim to the yoke. The yoke would be this item that they would slide over an animal so that the animal could go do the work of the farm. The ropes would come off of it uh, and so on. They're going to become a servant to others. Verse 12, he says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. It is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Verse 12 is an interesting verse because despite all of their transgressions, that we've been looking at even just today, let alone throughout this book, and despite the repeated warnings that they had ignored, the constant violations of the very covenants that they had pledged themselves to, despite all that, notice the Lord issues an opportunity for them to return. This is going to be something, if you will, that they'll, they'll put in their pocket, and when they're off in captivity, they'll pull it out and they'll remember that the Lord has invited us to return. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. In so many words, he's saying this. Look, you've done all these things. You've gotten yourself involved in all kinds of messes. You've abandoned all that was put in place for your good. And the Lord says, just put all that aside and just return. Just return. Return. 
Break up your fallow ground. Return. Allow the seeds of righteousness to once again be planted. He says to them, return, that you might reap steadfast love and mercy, and that God might once again rain down the blessings of righteousness upon you. Despite all of their sin, the Lord reaches out to them, and he says, return to me. You return to me, and I'll receive you. My friends, the Lord extends his hand to us this morning. And he extends his hand repeatedly to those that are outside of these walls that don't have any relationship with God whatsoever. He extends his hand and he invites us and them to return. Some of us in this room, I imagine, have blown it this week. We've blown our testimony with Christ at some point in time this week. Maybe this month, perhaps this year, or maybe some of us, we've blown it our entire lives. And we've drifted further and further and further away from the Lord. We've gotten ourselves involved in things which we never thought we would get ourselves involved in. On behalf of the Lord, can I extend his hand to each one of us here this morning? And can I plead with you? Return to the Lord. He loves you and he desires good for you. The history of Israel does not need to be your history. Return this day. Turn from your sin and reach your hand out and take his, and surrender your life, and sow for yourself seeds of righteousness so that his blessings can rain down on you as they did his people. Three takeaways, I think, this morning from our passage. The first, Israel forgot the Lord. They neglected him. As it says there in chapter 8, verse 14, they, they neglected their maker, and everything they had gotten themselves into was because of that. Don't neglect the Lord. That's our takeaway. Don't neglect the Lord in your life or the things of the Lord until crisis comes. That's when many of us return to God, when crisis comes. Lord, I need you. Don't neglect him in the so-called good times. Practice his presence and nurture the closeness of your relationship with him. Secondly, we saw in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that Israel had a false or a divided heart and that all of their difficulties that followed could be traced back to that. And I remind you what I said earlier. Jesus calls us to follow him with our whole hearts. And so if there's a portion of your life that you've been holding back from the Lord, Lord, I've given you a lot, but I'm not willing to give you that particular area or those particular areas, you have a divided heart. Give your whole heart to the Lord. I walked with a divided heart for a number of years in my walk with the Lord, never thinking I would have the power or the ability or the strength or you know, the perseverance to continue. And then eventually the Lord brings you to the end of yourself and you're like, it's, it's one or the other, Greg, pick. And you give it all over to him. You say, I don't know how, but Lord, I need you to take this from me that I might walk with you without any division in my heart. And the Lord shows up. And day after day after day, he strengthens you. If you have a divided heart, Bring your whole heart to the Lord. Finally, he says there, break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground is, is ground that's untilled. It's just sort of left to do its thing. It's a natural thing. It, it becomes hard. It becomes unplanted. He says, break up your fallow ground so that the seeds of righteousness can be sown so that the fruit of righteousness might be born. And I encourage you, allow the Lord to soften your heart. If you have bitterness in your heart, towards someone, maybe even toward the Lord for something you feel he did against you. If you're angry with someone and you're harboring that unforgiveness in your heart, all of those things harden your heart. Break up 
the fallow ground, allow the Lord to soften your heart so that he might bring forth fruit in your life and give every area of bitterness or unforgiveness or rebellion, give it all to him that he might work in it. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm just going to give you a minute to pray on your own. Just quietly in your own heart, bring these things to the Lord, whatever he's been sort of impressing. Father, we thank you that your word is alive, it's living and active. Lord, we thank you that these things that were put down on paper over 2,500 years ago can still be used to minister to our hearts uh, here this morning. And Lord, we know that uh, as your word goes forth, your spirit, Lord, is doing a work to uh, stir these things up within us. And, and Father, I pray for each of us that are here this morning. And the different areas that you've impressed upon us, the different things that you've brought to our heart and our mind, even as we heard these things. Areas, Lord, where perhaps we are emulating the people of Israel, going our own direction, doing our own thing, acknowledging the Lord, certainly, here we are, we're on a Sunday morning here. And yet the reality is we still are going after our own ways every other hour of the week. And so, Father, we as a, as a people and as individuals, we just come before you. We lay those things down that were and are our idols. We ask you to destroy them and to put them out of our misery, really, and their misery, so that we may have our eyes firmly and fully fixed upon you with undivided hearts. We pray that prayer for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.